I'm Alexia Russell and this is The Detail's Long Read. This week we're joined by Wellington journalist and author David Cohen, reading his recent piece for RNZ on the tragic Loafers Lodge fire, how Mike Warlick became the juggler and the lessons it leaves us. David and Mike had something in common. They were both at Ipuni Boys' home. David's written extensively about the abuse and care Royal Commission of Inquiry and is the author of Little Criminals, the story of a New Zealand boy's home. David, welcome to The Detail. Hi, wonderful to be here. How well did you get to know Mike the Juggler? I got to know him biographically. Um, I should underscore the point I'm uh, younger than he was. Ipuni operated for 30 years uh, or, or, or slightly more. So there was, there was a pretty big cohort there. Uh, he was in the early days, in the early chapter of the institution. Uh, I came later. And did his experiences in care mirror yours? No. He, he was at Ipuni when it was run by the Ministry of Education, it, it, it re- really was like a residential special school for uh, not so much wayward youth, but kids who had problems. But they weren't necessarily legal problems. They were from large families, uh, or they had single parents who weren't coping, uh, or whatever, in the main. Uh, so he was he was at Upuni in Lower Hutt, during that time. It was actually a relatively benign period uh, for Apuni, as it was for many of these residences, which started life uh, in a very well-intentioned fashion. I encountered it, I was in Apuni twice, quite a few years later, well into the 70s, at which point it was run by the Ministry of Social Welfare, and it had become largely a kind of holding pen uh, for kids on remand. So the tone, the nature, the style of the place and the chaos had uh, made it a different proposition to what it was in the mid mid to late 60s. Okay. Has writing about these cases and about the inquiry been sort of cathartic for you? No, not, not, not overly. I mean, we all seek catharsis, uh, according to Aristotle, in, um, in various ways. My, my main catharsis is, uh, or my main cathartic activity is music. What it does give me is a satisfaction. I'm a journalist. Uh, you know, Mike did his juggling and tried to do that well. I do journalism. I try to do it well. So I would put it more positively. I think my analyses of the old residential system and the current uh, abuse and care inquiry hopefully give me satisfaction rather than catharsis. And have you ever tried to go back there to Ipuni, maybe sort of to lay a few ghosts to rest? I have. Well, I've tried to go back. I've also put in OIA requests uh, to visit because I was rebuffed. Uh, Ironically, the person in charge of the residence that's the holding centre that's now where Epuni Boys Home used to be uh, was my first social worker. 
uh, Ross Barber. Uh, so there was a sort of irony in that. Uh, me, as a journalist, been rebuffed, and yet I was a, a former resident of the place. So the short answer is yes. I've also OIA quite a lot of information about how it's currently run, but unfortunately I haven't been able to visit, which seems sort of strange. Mm. So the abuse and care inquiry's been extended. When it finally finishes, what do you want to see happen? Well, I'd love it if it finished about a year ago. The great challenge now is getting through it, and there are various political and institutional reasons why it keeps on dragging on. I'm a little sceptical whether March 2024, at that point, we're, we're going to see a final report. I think the commission has made a bit of a rod for its own back, in a way. It, well, spreading it, it, the terms too wide? I, I think it's become overly ideological. It's gone down limitless paths of inquiry on colonialism and uh, critical race theory and uh, sort of ethnic questions, which ultimately um, are very difficult to answer. In doing so, I think it's ignored a whole lot of practical matters and questions. And it's also struggled as I say in the the most recent RNZ piece, to just put a human face on the subject, which is extraordinary since nearly $200 million of public money has been spent on it. Mm. Do you think it's lost focus on the children? Yes, I do. And I think it's lost focus on some pretty practical issues. Would you like me to give one? Sure. Um, Well, say father absence. Um, If you look at kids in these institutions, and I'm thinking of state-run institutions now, in fact, you could go into the D block of Paramarema, Auckland Prison, and you observe the same things. Boys, young men, and full-grown men who grow up without any male role models. I'm not saying that's the only issue. I know there are really important you know, other matters that are, are, are important. But we should at least be talking about this. Why, why is it if these thousands, maybe 30, 32,000 people went through these residences? Um, I'm just guessing, why is it about 98% of them had no male role model? And what can we learn from that? You've written previously that time is marching on for the people in the heart of the inquiry and Mike's death does, I suppose, Mm. provide an illustration of that. Does his case add impetus for a result here or do you feel that there's not enough of a sense of urgency? Well, it should. I've noted that nearly $200 million, a fifth of a billion dollars, has been spent on this inquiry that most reasonable people agree uh, needed to take place. A lot of people have made money out of this. 200 people at the height of the inquiry, 200 employees, communication specialists, secondees, outside consultants doing reports, some of them readable, others not so much. All kinds of money getting thrown around. The one group that hasn't received 
any has been the individuals ostensibly being looked at, that is, former wards. And as we see with Mike, they're getting older and dying. So redress is the, uh, you know, has to be the the number one thing at this point that would, would conclude it. And we basically know from Australia, Ireland, and parts of the United States and Canada, we sort of know what the formula is going to look like. So after four years, I don't think there's much of a case for delaying that any longer. And just on looking sort of slightly into the future here, you have said in one of your pieces that New Zealand is, after all, a deeply punitive culture. Do you stand by that? Is it really, or are we just like every other nation, baying for blood, Hmm. making mistakes, repeating them? I mean, you know, look at these recent RAM raids and the smash and grabs by young people Mm -hmm. and, you know, some politicians are calling for more punishment for youth to be put behind bars again. Mm. Another potential mistake when it comes to punishment? As I read it, New Zealand is a punitive culture or it exhibits a punitive character so often that I think it has to be reckoned as part of the uh, national style. I mean, this is the country where known homosexuals were flogged, you know, well into last century. This is the only developed nation uh, where the death penalty was reintroduced uh, in order to hang a teenaged offender. It doesn't make New Zealand unique, uh, but it would shut down any claim to the country having, you know, a, a sort of pacifist past. And it actually explains, I think, the whole, uh, you know, peace movement, anti-nuclear, uh, th- the woke thing. All, all these you can see as a sort of reaction against the past. So that's my thumbnail theory on that. As far as the ram raids go and the lawlessness that we're seeing, I know what it's like to be locked up uh, and I know what it's like to be a youth offender. But if, if you look at youth crime uh, over the past 150 years, or perceived youth crime, there's been a pendulum effect, and the country, the culture, at certain points has moved toward incarceration, uh, and in other points has gone back to quote unquote community based solutions. And we've been in the latter response now for a couple of decades. I think we'll go back to the institutional approach. This is David Cohen reading his piece How Mike Warlick Became the Juggler and the Lessons It Leaves Us. Mike the Juggler loved throwing balls. Always green tennis balls they were, three or four of them tumbling in the Wellington air. Any time of the day, and sometimes into the night, on the streets of the capital he'd be at it, usually on Lampton Quay, but sometimes in other places as well. Tens of thousands of passers-by saw him hard at it over the decades. Even as some must have wondered who this little guy in the signature blue jumper and baggy pants actually was in real life. And how did it happen 
that this one particular activity ever became such a focus and source of obvious self-esteem in his life. This past month, tragically, the answer to the first question became widely known when the 67-year-old Mike Warlick was named among those who perished in the blaze that ripped through the Loafers Lodge hostel in Wellington. Answering the other question, however, necessitates a bit of a circuitous trip through the alleys of local social history. It's a journey that loops back to the lengthiest and costliest inquiry ever held in New Zealand. Over the past four years, the Abuse and Care Royal Commission of Inquiry has sometimes struggled to put a human face to the question of what happened to the wards who passed through the various residences for the young that operated around the country in the last half of the 20th century. The five commissioners have considered 450,000 evidential documents held 133 days of public hearings and consulted heaven knows how many experts and activists, some with rather weighty ideological barrows to push. The process has certainly been challenging. Few would have been surprised to recently learn that the government has, yet again, extended the Commission's deadline for its final report. The report had been supposed to be sent to Parliament this month, but will instead be presented in March 2024. What did Mike Warlock make of all of this? Who knows? Perhaps a more apposite question to ask might be what people made of Mr Warlock. He was, after all, an elusive face. The inquiry has spent much effort in Treasury trying to bring into public focus. I first became aware of Mr Warlick's connection with the subject a decade ago when I started gathering notes for Little Criminals, my book about Ipuni Boys' Home, arguably the most notorious of the country's two dozen state-run institutions for the young. Hard luck stories from the grim residents have disproportionately figured in the many testimonies the Commission has gathered. Surprisingly, perhaps, it has to be said that Apuni did not always lack for redeeming features. This was particularly the case in the 1960s, when it served, or at least tried to serve, as a decent second option for boys unable to cope or be contained in their own home environments. Mr Warlick intersected with the residents during those palmier times. Back when Apuni was still officially referred to simply as the boys' home lower hut, and when most of those who administered the joint could fairly be described as progressive sorts. It was the period before the place spiralled into managerial chaos and even outright criminality. Apuni at the time still reflected some of the liberal values many of its staff had when the residence first opened on Riverside Drive in the summer of 1959. One gets a sense of these benign intentions by studying, for example, 
the almost unfailingly cheerful commentary scribbled in the institution's early logbooks. Boys excited but settled reasonably well, notes one. Supper and lights out at 9.30pm. More of the same followed the next day and the next day as well, and indeed for the better part of that first decade. Elsewhere in the records, kids are referred to by their first names, and the talkers of movie outings, trips to local baths and softball games. A sweet and light record that dovetails nicely with the recollections of others of the institution's initially relaxed environment. But Apuni, which was initially overseen by the old Department of Education, was also meant to produce scholastic results. More often than not, this was a problem. According to an early departmental study, the average resident was, quote, academically retarded, unquote, by up to seven years in terms of basic literacy and numeracy. Leaving aside the unfortunate choice of words, there's no reason to doubt that assessment. Not to mention the headache it must have created for managers looking to somehow fill the intellectual void. Sure, the wards could have been enrolled in a, quote, special class at one or other of the schools around the Hutt Valley, but the schools weren't always enthusiastic. There was also the perennial issue of classmates or even teachers, labelling these entrants as handicapped, which itself could cause volcanic issues to sort out after hours. Much better, it was reasoned, to create adjacent activities at the boys' home outside of the educationally inauspicious classroom the institution did maintain that they might eventually prosper in. So, The boys stayed home for the most part, learning, for example, how to play the guitar. There was weaving too, rather more so in the later years when Maori youngsters began to disproportionately figure in the cohort. Some wards even learnt to carve pumice. And what about those whose talents didn't find a match with any of the above? Well, there was always juggling. And why not? Juggling improves hand-eye coordination and bimanual dexterity. Juggling focuses concentration and reduces stress. It fine-tunes goal-setting and problem-solving skills. On top of that, juggling delays gratification and in doing so enhances self-esteem. Indeed, these days it's widely seen as a therapeutic tool for treating youngsters with ADHD. No doubt it accrued these and other benefits for at least one boy at the time. It's easy to see what this meant to Mike the juggler. What isn't so easy to imagine is the closing months of his life. First, there was the savage beating he received at Loafer's Lodge that left him in hospital for a month last year. Later, fitfully, awkwardly, a shadow of his already broken former self, he was back out on the streets again, hoping to recapture the old juggler's style. Perhaps he hoped for an apology too. 
and perhaps a share in the redress to which he would have been entitled on the back of the Royal Commission's long-postponed report. Alas, the ultimate content of that document still hangs in the air, like so many tennis balls aloft in the Wellington night, while so much else continues to burn. That was David Cohen reading his piece How Mike Warlick Became the Juggler and the Lessons It Leaves Us, published on RNZ's website. The details long read is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. We'll be back next week with another long read. Kakite anō.